from the sky, the launch facilities at Cape Canaveral looked like a steadily expanding hive. Buildings and launch pads all connected by the thin veins of roads. It had come a long way since it was a mere missile testing site. Now it was the heart of America's space program, and it was only continuing to improve. President John F. Kennedy peered down from a helicopter at the new construction. What would one day form the world's first moon port? It was as though his challenge and the promise it implied was taking solid shape below, right on the Florida coast. Gordon Cooper and Gus Grissom flew alongside the president, pointing out the various features and buildings that were forming up below. Most impressive was the new rocket construction facility. It was unlike any to come before. The Saturn V moon rocket was going to be larger than any such vehicle ever constructed. Unlike the V-2 or the Redstone, which were built horizontally before being tipped up vertically for launch, the Saturn would have to be constructed already standing on end. And that meant that a facility capable of holding its 363-foot height would be required. The resulting structure stood no less than 456 feet high, towering over the launch complex. It had to be positioned near to the launch pads so that the rocket wouldn't have to be carted over any great distances where damage could be sustained. But that also meant that the new building would need to be able to withstand hurricane-force winds, a common hazard in the region. To ensure that it wouldn't be carried away in the first storm, 4,000 piles would hold it fast to the bedrock below. Kennedy smiled as he gazed down at the burgeoning moonport. He marveled at the descriptions and the plans that astronauts Cooper and Grissom provided. His vision was taking form, solid and real. Before his helicopter ride, Kennedy had met with Werner von Braun, and the engineer had shown off his Saturn I rocket, the first major step toward the production of the missile that would carry an American crew to the moon. And surely, never too far from his mind, were the Soviets. They had nothing to match what the Americans were building. His nation was gaining on their chief rival in the space race, even if the public didn't see it that way. Kennedy left in high spirits, confident that even despite the growing public resistance to the massive expenditures the government was making on space projects, his vision would be realized all the same. It was the last time he would ever visit the Cape. Six days later, President Kennedy and his wife Jackie made their way to Houston, then to Dallas. Just after noon, riding in an open-topped convertible, the president and his motorcade trundled toward Dealey Plaza. Shortly thereafter, television programs all over the country were interrupted with the devastating news. President Kennedy had been assassinated.
Welcome to Season 2 and Episode 21 of Frontier of Infinity, American Crisis. Last season ended with the final dual flight of the Vostok program. Project Mercury had ended just a few months before, and with the flights of Valery Baikovsky and Valentina Tereshkova, Vostok also came to an end. Today, we're covering one of the most dire tragedies to strike the American space program, the loss of NASA's chief advocate, John F. Kennedy, right at a moment where factions of the American public were beginning to turn against the idea of a moon program. Vostok's 5 and 6 left some in America shaken. To the common citizen, it appeared that the Soviets were light years ahead of the Americans, and that there was no chance of catching up, let alone of taking the lead. More crucially, however, was the fact that voices among the press and the public had begun to seriously question the huge sums of money that were flowing NASA's way. NASA's budget in 1963 made up just over 2% of the total federal budget, a huge increase from the agency's inception in 1958. Domestic issues were also rising in the American consciousness and were beginning to eclipse the enthusiasm that had fueled the first few years of the space race. Some people asked, why spend so much money sending astronauts to the moon when there are very real problems on the ground that need to be addressed? The New York Times went so far as to run an article headlined, Lunar Program in Crisis. On the engineering side, there were emergent problems with the Apollo program as well, most notably with Von Braun's F-1 engines. Werner Von Braun and his staff at the Marshall Space Flight Center had been struggling for quite a while with combustion instability inside the massive F-1, but they had come to a startling conclusion. Rather than try to eliminate the instability, they would instead try to design an engine capable of contending with it. But in order to do that, they would need to be able to collect data on pressure waves in the engine. To do this, they opted for an extreme course of action, planting small bombs inside the engine to produce predictable pressure waves. Needless to say, this was quite dangerous. But the way Fawn Brown and his staff saw it, it was the only way to move forward. Even President Kennedy seemed to grow nervous regarding the program. He had been the space program's bastion since even before he was elected president. But on September 20th, 1963, in an address to the United Nations, Kennedy made a stunning suggestion. That maybe the United States and Soviet Union could go to the moon together. As one would probably expect, the Soviets denied this offer almost immediately. But there are several ways that this suggestion can be interpreted. Perhaps it was nothing more than a public relations move for Kennedy, offering an olive branch to his chief rival, showing the world that he was willing to work together. Perhaps he knew that the Soviets would shoot the plan down, making them appear curmudgeonly and resistant to cooperation in the international eye. Or just maybe, Kennedy really was becoming nervous himself about the monetary expenditure and the engineering challenges that came along with the moon program. 
Maybe it really was an attempt to pool the resources and know-how of the world's two superpowers to conquer the moon. Well, no matter the motivation, a joint U.S.-Soviet moon mission was out of the question. So Kennedy tried something else. He would return to his old pattern, trying to rekindle American interest in space, and he would do it with another tour of the American space community. He traveled to Cape Canaveral, where he inspected the new facilities that were under construction and the new rockets that were in testing. He flew over the Cape with Gus Grissom and Gordon Cooper, who enthusiastically explained what was going on down below. Days after he was finished at the Cape, and after traveling up the eastern seaboard, Kennedy and his wife Jackie flew first to Houston and then to Dallas. He was campaigning across the country, not only focused on space travel, but with a wary eye on the impending 1964 elections. This trip to Texas was just the next part of a tour around the western states. The plan was that both the President and First Lady would visit five cities across Texas over the course of two days, November 21st and 22nd. It was the first time since 1948 that a President made an official visit to the city of Dallas. The morning of Friday, November 22nd, dawned with rain in Fort Worth, Texas, just outside of Dallas. Kennedy and his entourage flew 13 minutes into Dallas aboard Air Force One, where they touched down at Love Field. Kennedy was dressed in his usual dark suit, but Jackie was clad in a bright pink ensemble, complete with a pillbox hat perched atop her head. Upon landing, she received a bouquet of big red roses, which she tucked into the crook of her arm as she made her way with her husband toward the convertible that would take them through the city. Texas Governor John Connolly and his wife Nellie were seated in the front. John and Jackie Kennedy would ride behind them, while Vice President Johnson and his wife would travel behind in a car of their own. Secret Service agent Clint Hill, who was part of Kennedy's security detail that day, reported that visibility was the main concern for the event. Kennedy wanted to see the people and let the people see him. Hence the reason he opted for an open-topped car. It also meant that his security detail were instructed to keep their distance. In a car behind the Kennedys, eight more Secret Service agents rode in one of their own, including Clint Hill. The president was scheduled to deliver an address at a trade market in the city, but he would make a ten-mile journey through Dallas to get there. The streets were lined with people as Kennedy made his way, and colorful buntings in red, white, and blue hung overhead. There were cheers, whistles, and shouts as the presidential motorcade made its way through the city. Main Street was crowded to capacity as an army of police officers held back the crowds and kept a careful watch for any signs of trouble. On the buildings that walled in the road, windows were open and onlookers were clinging to fire escapes, crowding atop roofs, or standing on top of objects that lined the sidewalk to get a look at the president as he passed. Kennedy waved to the masses, Jackie too, and the procession continued on their way. Ahead, Dealey Plaza loomed up between the buildings. The road curved around a pair of grassy parks, 
and Kennedy's car turned off of Main Street onto Elm Street near a schoolbook depository. Here, the landscape opened up with the parks, and the car was cruising through a more exposed area than the urban canyon it had navigated on Main Street. There was still a crowd, but they were more diffuse, and a number of movie cameras were rolling as the president's car crawled up the street. Just ahead was the expressway that would carry Kennedy and his entourage to the site where he was to speak. Agent Hill, from his car behind the president's, scanned the area, still on alert. He noticed that there was an overpass up ahead that the motorcade would have to drive underneath, a potential hazard. But the top of that overpass was manned by police officers, easing Hill's concerns. He turned his attention elsewhere, scanning around the plaza for other possible threats. Just as had been the case before, there were open windows on buildings that lined the plaza. The same was true of the schoolbook depository, which sat on the corner of Houston and Elm. Four or five windows stood open on the building, and a knot of workmen were gathered out front on their lunch break, watching the president glide past. As the procession advanced down Elm Street, Agent Hill looked to his left, continuing to scan over the crowd, when the air was rent by an explosive crack. Hill wheeled his eyes around toward the president's car just in time to see Kennedy reach up for his throat. In that moment, with that gesture, Agent Hill realized that what he had heard was a gunshot. Agent Hill leapt from his car and ran toward the president, fully intending to leap up onto the back of the car to shield him from any further gunfire. But Kennedy's car was too far away. Hill was running past a police officer on a motorcycle when a second shot rang out, and the bullet it sent struck the president in the head. He went limp and slumped over into his wife's lap. Spattered with Kennedy's blood, Agent Hill ran up to the car and secured himself to the side. He shouted for the driver to make for the nearest hospital, but it's unlikely his order was heard by its intended recipient. Regardless, another agent who was riding alongside the driver issued an identical instruction, and the car sped off toward Parkland Memorial Hospital. They careened onto the expressway, Hill still clinging desperately to the side of the car as it flew along as quickly as possible, given the traffic conditions. The Dallas police chief, in his own car, piloted the president's limousine to the hospital. Governor Connolly had also been shot in the back, and both he and the president were rushed into the trauma ward. Agent Hill and a few of the others stayed by Jackie's side as the situation strayed beyond their control. Then, at around one o'clock, a doctor emerged to announce that there was nothing they could do. The president was dead. When it finally came time for the First Lady to leave Dallas with her husband's body, Agent Hill was there with her. He reported later that she refused to ride in her own car. She would stick by John's side all the way to Love Field, where he was loaded in a casket back inside Air Force One. The plane's engineers had already cleared out a number of the seats inside so that John Kennedy could make his final flight in the cabin rather than in the belly of the plane. Naturally, Vice President Johnson was there as well. 
Throughout that afternoon, he had been conferencing over the phone with figures in Washington, who urged him to take the oath of office before the plane departed Dallas. But in order to do that, a federal judge would need to be present. After a frantic search, recently appointed federal judge Sarah Hughes agreed to come aboard Air Force One and administer the oath of office to Lyndon Johnson. While the new president was preparing to be sworn in, Jackie Kennedy took the opportunity to check in on Agent Hill and his colleagues. She was concerned about how well they were handling the loss of the man she knew they respected very highly. Even amid her own grief, she still managed to express her concern for the others around her. Still in her blood-stained clothes, Jackie Kennedy stood by Lyndon Johnson's side as he accepted the role of President of the United States. The news of the assassination rocked the U.S. to its very core. The president's body was flown back to Washington, where it was carried to the Capitol in a caisson drawn by seven horses. Over the course of the 21 hours during which the president laid in state in the Capitol Rotunda, 250,000 people passed by to pay their respects. In no time at all, the news had raced around the country and then the world. TV broadcasts of all kinds were interrupted as news services and broadcasters dropped everything to inform the public of what had happened. The sorrow set in immediately, mixed in almost equal measure with shock and rage. The next order of business was to find the assassin. That man, the one responsible for killing the president, was one Lee Harvey Oswald. He was a former Marine, but had defected to the Soviet Union before his 20th birthday. He lived in the USSR for a time, but seems to have grown to regret it, eventually requesting that he be allowed to return to the U.S. This request was accepted, and Oswald was repatriated. Though he had returned to his mother country, his disillusionment appears to have remained as it was later determined that he had made an attempt to assassinate Major General Edwin Walker in March of 1963. This attempt failed, but come November of that same year, he would ascend to the upper floor of the Texas School Book Depository with a rifle disguised under a cloth as a bundle of curtain rods. It was from there that he shot President Kennedy. Once he had carried out the assassination, he fled the scene eventually going home to his apartment in the same city. But a witness of the assassination had gotten a look at the shooter and provided a description to the police. Dallas police officer J.D. Tippett stopped Oswald not far from his home, presumably because he matched the description that had been given. But when Tippett confronted Oswald, Oswald pulled a pistol and fired four shots into the officer, killing him. He then quickly fled the scene to a nearby theater. While most of the Dallas Police Department were swarming over the city in search of the president's killer, a number of officers were dispatched to hunt down the one who had killed Tippett. They locked down the theater where he had taken refuge and pushed inside. Oswald initially put up a fight, punching an officer in the face and pulling his gun, but the gun didn't fire and Oswald was apprehended. He was thoroughly interrogated by the police, but he denied having killed Tippett or Kennedy, 
despite the fact that witnesses and other evidence firmly tied him to both crimes. On November 24th, when Oswald was due to be transferred from the city jail to a county holding facility, a nightclub owner by the name of Jack Ruby pushed his way through the crowd that had gathered outside the police station. Ruby pulled a pistol of his own and shot Oswald in the torso. Oswald was taken to Parkland Memorial Hospital, the very same one where President Kennedy had been taken just two days prior, where he died of hemorrhaging as a result of the gunshot wound. Ruby was arrested and found guilty of murder, stating that he had been much aggrieved by Kennedy's death and that he was of a mind to spare Mrs. Kennedy the trauma of a trial. Now, I understand that there are an awful lot of shall we say, alternative explanations regarding what happened to President Kennedy. But I'm not interested in discussing any of those here. If that's your thing, there are plenty of other sources you can look at for that kind of stuff. But here, I'm only interested in what is confirmed as fact. President Johnson organized a commission to investigate the matter, headed by Chief Supreme Court Justice Earl Warren, which determined that Oswald had acted alone and not as part of a larger conspiracy. They likewise concluded that Jack Ruby was a solo actor who was not enacting the orders of another party. These findings have proven controversial, and that's where I'm going to leave off with that part of the story. The killer had been identified and executed. Granted, it was an extrajudicial execution, but he had met his fate nonetheless. But the nation and the world were not finished grieving for President Kennedy. On November 25, 1963, Kennedy was interred at Arlington National Cemetery. The funeral service was broadcast all over the country so that Americans everywhere could take part. Werner von Braun was one of those Americans. He didn't take the day off. There was simply too much to do with the Apollo deadline looming nearer and nearer. But the service played out on the television while he sifted through paperwork at his desk. His personal secretary later reported that the day of Kennedy's funeral was the only time she had ever seen him weep. The news of Kennedy's passing was taken particularly hard by those in the space community. He had been their number one advocate for years. When the press or the public or Congress expressed doubts regarding the wisdom of pursuing an expensive space program for gains which seemed to the common person as little more than bragging rights over the Soviets, Kennedy had always been first in line to offer a defense. He was always eager to stir up fresh public conviction for operations in space and he had always brought his signature charm and enthusiasm to those goals. Now he was gone, at a moment when the future of the American space program appeared to be in flux. With so many voices questioning why bother with space, and with their chief advocate gone, what would become of the American space projects? Luckily for NASA, President Johnson was just as enthusiastic about space as his predecessor had been, and he vowed to see Kennedy's promise carried through. At NASA, the higher-ups were determined to do everything they could to meet Kennedy's challenge of reaching the moon before the decade was out. And after all, 
there was a new piloted space program that was up and coming. Though it wasn't quite ready to fly, Project Gemini was nearing fruition. It wouldn't be long before American astronauts and their Soviet counterparts were once again racing around the Earth in a desperate bid to outdo one another. The United States was thrown into crisis. But crisis is a state well known to Americans. Our very nation was born of it, and crisis, so very often, can serve as opportunity to build strength and resilience. In December of 1776, the American colonies, not yet the United States, were facing a dire crisis of their own, prompting one of the first great American writers, Thomas Paine, to pen those immortal words, These are times that try men's souls. Less famously, but just as importantly, he went on to write, quote, Yet we have this consolation with us, that the harder the conflict, the more glorious the triumph. What we obtain too cheap, we esteem too lightly. Tis dearness only that gives everything its value. End quote. As the American patriots would suffer through the hardships of the revolution and emerge stronger on the other side, so too would the American space program weather the loss of President Kennedy and continue to press forward. The end of 1963 saw a lull in the space race, but it's far from over. When we return, we're going to take a step back in time to trace the origins of Project Gemini. This program didn't come out of nowhere. In fact, it had long been in development since before the first Mercury capsule had carried Alan Shepard into space. We'll see how this project originated, developed, and changed over time. The Americans have been dealt a terrible blow, but they're not out of the running. As always, thanks to all of you for listening. If you like this show and you want to help me out, please follow the podcast, share it with your friends and family, and leave it a rating if you feel so inclined. It really does help. Our theme music is Crossing the Universe by Esther Garcia. You can listen to the full track and more of her music on Spotify. Until next time, I'm Tom. This is Frontier of Infinity. I'll see you among the stars. Thank you.